0: Each week in our bulletin, we also have a sister church that is mentioned in our association. It's Dwayne Knight this week at Valley Street Baptist Church. And I want us to remember them in prayer. Because, you know, the church is not, of course, just Kingsway Baptist Church. They're, God's people are everywhere, and we want to be supportive of one another. And uh, so just remember Dwayne and Valley Street Baptist Church. We are in Mark chapter 3. Verses 22 through 30. John. I wrote Mark for some reason in my notes. Don't believe everything a pastor says. John chapter 3. Thank you. 22 through 30. If you'll stand in God's honor. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem. Because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. There was before John this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about? Well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of you. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for Valley Street Church and pastor there, Lord. Bless them. I pray that the Spirit of God is moving with them this morning. As we pray, your Spirit moves here with us. We thank you, Lord, that you, you love us. And we know, Father, that you know, sometimes we're hard to love. But you have chosen to love Lord us. Speak to our hearts, Father, as we continue to offer ourselves to you in this time of worship. Father, I, I just pray that you would speak in spite of me, not because of me, this morning. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 2 and 3, it says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted the Lord is good. When you first get the gospel. And you know who you are. And you know what you're like. And you see that God's love has no boundaries man. He just loves you to the full. It makes you want to grow up. It makes you want to mature in the faith. You start out on milk but... you want to know more of that love and you want to know more of what God wants you to know. In Ephesians 4, we're told that you may grow up in all things into him who is head, even Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the love chapter, it tells us near the end of that in verse 11, Paul says, "When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways Behind me. So there is this need. To grow up. Not to stay an infant in Christ. Not to merely. Focus on. Just the bare essentials. Well I'm headed to heaven. And if I'm not. God talk to me. You know that kind of stuff. It is a walk. It, It is daily. Actually it's moment by moment. Of leaning upon. The Lord. But in order to grow up, you got to grow down. In other words, you understand you desperately need God's help. And you need the support and the help of His people, of the the church family. We need Him. We need one another. So it's, it's not about, look where I am. It's about, look where He is and the support that He gives me through those He has given to me. Through the cross. There's power there. Our text this morning. um, You've actually got some grumbling going on. Some disagreement. Uh, You have some disciples who were argumentative. And you have two groups of disciples. you got the group who were disciples of John the Baptist. And then you have those who were the disciples of Jesus. And as Jesus began to grow in popularity, John the Baptist began to lose some of his popularity. His disciples were not used to that. They were used to being the center of attention. They were used to being the prime place to come and to hear from God. And so they began to Be uncomfortable as they saw the crowds shifting away from where they were to a different place. Notice our our text. He he says, Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees as heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John. Now watch this. He left Judea and departed to Galilee. So, There's Jesus' disciples, they're baptizing people. And John's disciples, eh, they're not too happy about it. Because they see the one they're following losing some of the fanfare and some of the attention. In verse 26, it says, They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going To him. Now to begin with. I want you to see the exaggeration there. Everyone. Is going. To him. That's what happens when jealousy. Sets in. There's exaggeration. Suddenly there's this picture. What about me? Why am I being left behind? Why am I being left out? And the truth of the matter is where there is more than one person, there is the possibility and even probability for there to be an argument or a disagreement. And I've been a Baptist long enough to know that Baptists are not exempt from this. Sometimes Baptists get upset with one another. Sometimes they struggle. And I'm not, you know, I'm going through my mind. All of us have seen this stuff in church life if we've been in church any length of time you know the old saying if you find the perfect church don't join it or you'll ruin it because the church although we are perfect in christ and we hide behind the work of jesus christ so that the father when he looks upon us he sees jesus when you get behind jesus there's still some rascals out there all of us and so the picture here is that these disciples of john they are jealous as they see this movement of God that's taking away their crowd. <laughs> Walter Martin, uh, years ago, Cindy and I had s- served in a, really it was more like a rescue mission type ministry in Long Island. And one of the primary people in that ministry was a guy named Buddy Morell, a-, a man we dearly loved. And Buddy was friends with a guy named Walter Martin, who was an apologist, Uh, In the pre-podcast days, uh, well, pre-cassette, probably pre-8-track, some of you probably said, what are you even talking about, preacher? Uh, Pre-a lot of things, not pre-book. But Walter Martin had said, if you have two people who agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. You see, when we think, we have different thoughts. And sometimes that can be a clash I had a teacher in college that used to say, it's okay to bump heads, but don't bump hearts. And sometimes when we bump heads, our hearts bump, and we become upset with one another. Dr. Bob Cook, who was the former president of Youth for Christ, used to say, God reserves the right to use people who disagree with you. Guys, we don't always have it right, do we? And even when we know we have it right, sometimes we don't know we have it wrong. And God has to move and he has to speak to us and through us. (laughs) There's a lot of examples of disagreement in the Bible. In Genesis 13, you have the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. And they got into a disagreement and, oh boy, we don't want to be there. Genesis 31, we have Jacob and Laban, a nephew and uncle, having a confrontation. More family stories Genesis 37 Joseph and his own brothers. What a confrontation. And then of course the 12 disciples who used to argue about well who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It'll be me. No, it'll be me. Well, what about me? You know that those kind of arguments that occurred and there was Peter and Paul who had a disagreement about the law and about grace. And then there was the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that were at odds with one another over salvation. And then, of course, there was Barnabas and Paul who who got into such a disagreement that they ended up parting ways. So we know that we have the possibility and even probability of getting mad at each other and the devil can get in the midst of it and a relationship can be harmed deeply. And sometimes broken. And that relationship is never what it used to be. Unfortunately, that often happens. And I have met people who have left the church because they, they've just been hurt so bad and hasn't been restored, the relationship with the church. And, and that is so tragic. That is so sad. And sometimes those reasons are, are simply carnal. We're just not walking with the Lord and, and we're just wrong. We hurt one another. Uh, if you remember in Corinthians, it, there's a section in there. It basically, uh, one group says, well, I'm of Paul. And another group says, I'm of Apollos. And another group says, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And then there's that super spiritual group. Don't you hate those guys? It says, well, I'm of Jesus Christ. Kind of like the trump card. Man, you're the other guy. Let me tell you, I'm of Jesus. You've got to listen to me because I've always got it together. And basically in the passage, Paul says, you guys are all carnal. You're all fleshly. You are all missing the point of grace. Sometimes we do things for ourselves. We're not open to God and what He really wants. I came across a story sometime back that was in a newspaper of some firemen who were supposed to be protecting fires, and there began to be a rash of fires, 40 fires in the area. And they discovered that the firemen were the arsonists. They had set the fires. (laughs) And so they asked these arsonists, why did you do this? And they said, well, we had nothing to do, and we just felt like we needed to see red lights flash and bells clang. Sometimes in church, we want the attention and we want to see lights and bells clang, but Jesus is not there. And that sometimes it's corrective. We have a fight and although we have to live in grace, obviously, we also have to live in truth. and and when the truth comes under fire, We are called to stand for the truth. In Jude, uh, there's only one chapter in it, verse 3. We're called to contend for the faith. In other words, know the truth and be willing to share the truth. And that means, of course, we have to be in our Bibles and we have to study. So sometimes it's corrective. Sometimes it's because we're carnal. Sometimes it's because we're corrective. Uh, But it's not only just being argumentative sometimes it's just being competitive that's a problem and it was in this case these guys these disciples of john the baptist they were the best they wanted to be the best and now they felt like they were under fire and no longer the best and the competitive juices came out and it caused problems Remember, I love that passage in Philippians where the Apostle Paul tells us this. He says, some preach Christ out of envy and strife. Others preach Christ out of goodwill. He said, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. In other words, they wanted to make Paul miserable while he was in prison, but yet Paul kept his eyes on the goal. He said, man, I am just happy that Christ is being preached because people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the message. There was a um, study done by a seminary professor in one of his classes where he would uh, use a word and ask the members of the class to share the first thing that came to their mind. And what really upset him was he discovered just how broken his class was and how these people were looking for power. Many of them, they were searching to be somebody instead of just being servants. There was a struggle there. There, there was a competitive struggle thinking, I've got to build my kingdom. And yes, we need to build the church. And yes, we need to grow but it also needs to be in the fact of it; it's for him. Not so we build a name for ourselves. Or so that people know who we are. But rather they know who Christ is. So I, I share all that, this first part of it. You have this honest struggle with the disciples. But I love the way John the Baptist handles it. Man, John the Baptist, he was just a man too. He wasn't God. He could have easily taken up some of those same jealousies and pursued that argumentative spirit and that competitive spirit against Jesus and his followers. But he had learned not to grow up merely, but to grow down. He had learned to look upon what really matters and to see clearly his place. And, And so I want to look at four of these this morning. Um, the, The first one is that he has a proper theology. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. In other words, John understood God was in control. And he understood that the influence he had and the power that he had, it was given by God. And it was his assignment. He could not have had that influence if God had not given it to him. John the Baptist had a healthy view of the power of God. That God is in control. Um, he, was able to, he was able to say, God gave this to me. That's why I have it. You know, it's important that we understand that. You know, people say, well, is God in control of the whole universe? Yeah, He's in control of the whole universe. Is God in control of the United States? Yes. Is is God in control of the state you live in, the town you live in? Is God in control of your family? Is God big enough to be in control of your life? And if you really believe that in the sovereignty of God, that He is big enough to be in control of your life, and that He has given you the influence that you have, can you trust Him in that? Can you have confidence in that? When we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, are we able to trust that? Secondly, if God does begin to do a work in us and through us that becomes noticeable, where we get attention. And it's like, boy, that person's doing such a great job for God. The understanding is, on that side of the fence, it's because God has allowed it to happen. It's not that that person didn't work hard. None of that stuff. Still, it's just the blessing of God upon him. If it's lasting, it is a confidence in knowing that what I have, no matter the size of my field, (laughs) no matter the amount of my influence it comes from god that's a proper theology listen to this, this is 1 corinthians 4 verse 7 what makes you better than anyone else what do you have that god hasn't given to you and if all that you have is from god then why do you boast as though you've accomplished something on your own it's a picture of understanding That God is the one who gives it all to you. Even your gifts, everything about you, God has allowed that to happen in his plan, and his mercy. That's a proper theology. Second, not only a proper theology, but a proper understanding. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear my witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent from him. This says so much about John. John was getting so much attention. He was the prime preacher. People were coming from everywhere to hear him. But he knew he understood his place. He wasn't jealous of Jesus Christ, his cousin. He understood his limits. And that is so critical. Instead of trying to be somebody else, and so often we become enamored with other people and we think, well, if I could just be like that person. No. If I can just be who God has made me to be. I love that. I, I know I've shared it before, the saying by Oscar Wilde. He says, Be yourself, everyone else is already taken. Discover who God has made you and be that person. In following his call. There's three main passages as far as spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. And if you learn anything till you read, as you read these passages, there is a lot of variety among the church of God. We're all different. We are not all the same. And I guess that's why some arguments can arise. But God has gifted us differently, but it's all for a purpose, to bring him glory. And he wants all the pieces of the church of Christ to fit together for that common cause of his work. And and we're all used differently as well. I want to read to you, this is from 1 Corinthians 12, and this is from the message, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Just a few verses I want to share with you. You can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. That's exactly the same with Christ. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant and not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but smaller parts arranged and functioning together. If a foot says, I'm not elegant like a hand embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? If the ear said, I'm not beautiful like an eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head, would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If the body was all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he is. Wanted it. The gifts he has given you are for a distinct purpose in the body of Christ. They may not be as elegant or showy, but they are every bit as needed and necessary. Everyone matters in the body of Christ. And the whole body suffers when parts of the body don't cooperate. Let's say that one of my legs decided, well, I'm just not going to work today. Man, I can only hop so far, you know. Or if one of my eyes don't want to work, well, man, I got a, I got a blind side to me, you know, on that day. No, every part of the body is significant. <laughs> one commentator wrote it like this. He said, that's like a kneecap saying, hey, if I'm a really good kneecap, I could work my way up to becoming an elbow. I just want to work a little bit higher up the scale. Or a lung saying, if I'm really faithful at being a lung, could I have more exposure eventually? Yeah, if you want to die, and if you come outside the body, it's best to function with the unction that God has given you. That's his plan. That's the way he works. All right, third is a proper attitude. Look with me at verse 29. He says, The bride belongs to the bride. the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice that joy is mine and it is now complete um one of the commentators had mentioned one of the main roles of the bridegroom a key part of the wedding he function in a way that's kind of similar to how we think of a best man in a wedding. One of his main jobs was to guard the chamber, the wedding chamber, to make sure no false lover came into the chamber where the bride was, but only the right lover. And so this friend of the bridegroom, he would wait to hear the voice of his dear friend who was the true groom. And we heard that voice, He led him in because he knew him and he was aware of him. And this is the job of the servant of Christ. And John said, this is my job. I am not the Christ. I am the messenger. I am the herald. I am the one who proclaims he is coming or he has come. I'm not that man. So he had that proper understanding of who he was. And he followed in that way. In Numbers chapter 11, eh, the people are grumbling about manna. Remember, manna means what is it? So I imagine they spend a lot of time saying, well, What is this stuff? What is it? You know, how many ways can I cook it? And I'm tired of it. I, I want meat. And so the people are complaining, I need some meat, Lord. I'm tired of this manna stuff. And so you may remember the story. He sends a bunch of quail. And, of course, Moses is like, oh, Lord, that's a lot of quail. Are you sure there's enough meat that you're going to send to these people to um, quit their grumbling? (laughs) And God says, hey, listen, I'm going to send so much meat, it's going to come out their nose. I mean, they're going to be, they're going to wish they had never asked for meat. They're going to have more than they ever dreamed of having. And so then the Spirit of the Lord came upon these elders. And so they had this time of prophecy. Following them, there were two specific guys uh, by the name of Eldad and Medad who continued to prophesy in the camp. Well, there was a messenger that came to the right-hand man of Moses, Joshua, and said to him, Hey, these guys are still prophesying in the camp. And so he came to, Joshua went directly to Moses, and he said to him, hey, these guys have to stop. You must stop them, Moses. Even Joshua got caught up in this nonsense that a man like Moses was God. And I love Moses' response. You know, it says that he was the most humble or the meekest man in all the earth, and and here's another example of that. He says in that text in Numbers 11, he says, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of God's people were prophets and that the Spirit of God was on all of them. Man, he had that proper attitude. Proper attitude. Now, one more a proper relationship. Verse 30. Which also be our closing verse, man, what a great verse. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Some translations, he must become greater. I must become less. We don't have any trouble thinking about ourselves. sometimes i I think I was a psychology major in college, and uh, you know I look back and I think about there are a lot of good things to learn in psychology. But sometimes, if you think about it, in psychology we're always thinking about, Ooh. and sometimes we can get so wrapped up in we don't see God. It happens. John refused to do that. He said, it's not about me becoming greater. It's about Jesus. Jesus becoming greater and so it was just such a beautiful picture of of understanding um, that it was not his job to be more visible it was his job now to begin to work in the background because God had called him for a role that he had been faithful to and now he was able to step aside and continue to support him William Carey what a, a great missionary. He used to work on shoes. And this was during a time where there was a belief that was so strong that God is in such control that the people that, want, that will get saved, God will speak to them, they'll get saved, and we don't have to do nothing but sit back and trust God, and, man, everything will be great. <laughs> well, William Carey got under conviction, and he got under burden, and he said, how will they hear without a preacher? You know, as it says in the book of Romans. And, and so he left to another country and he was known in Baptist circles as the father of the missionary movement. And he began to share Christ. And one of the great sayings William Carey had is attempt great things from God, expect great things from God. It's not about just sitting and waiting to see what happens. It's about being part of a team in the work of God. And for his purposes. Well, when William Carey was on his deathbed, one of the last things he said was this, when I'm gone, don't speak about William Carey. Speak about William Carey's Savior. That was just his heart. That was his ministry. That's what he wanted to be remembered for. was his Savior. Um, all right, I get to the end of this thing um, You know, we've been talking about John the Baptist. We've been talking about the disciples, about Jesus, his disciples. Oh, man, sometimes we get bent out of shape. And we're missing God when we do that. What about you? Is there something in your life that there's a competitive spirit and and you feel like you've been shafted? And you're not getting what you deserve and another person is being elevated and you're thinking, well, I'm just gifted as that person why is that person being elevated and i'm down here being forgotten or i'm not noticed or nobody sees my importance maybe you find yourself in such a place maybe you feel like you're being pushed aside when you deserve more as you go through each of these just realize in summary these points also apply to us Number one, just understand God is still in control. He knows exactly where you are, and he has not abandoned you, okay? Secondly, understand and recognize that he has gifted you. None of us have all the gifts, but we need to work within the framework of how he has gifted us. And, you know, we're all different. For for example, if someone has the gift of evangelism, you got, you know, some of these evangelists that can fill up a stadium, and they speak, and man, God just brings all these people down, because the gift is at work. Other people have the gift of evangelism, where it's more one-on-one, and they can just meet somebody, and next thing you know, man, they're coming across. There was a guy I went to seminary with, um, Sid Hill. He was an all-American baseball player. He was in a car wreck, and he almost died, and Uh, Because of that, like Festus, he had a limp for the rest of his life. And, uh, oh my goodness, Sid, you'd hang around with him, and it, it wasn't long before he was telling somebody about Jesus. It's like, well, let me guess what spiritual gift he has. You know, it was pretty clear. And, you know, God would use him in that matter. So in other words, just because you have a spiritual gift doesn't mean that your administration of that gift is like another person who has that gift. God uses us all in different ways. You can listen to a sermon by Chuck Swindoll and a sermon by Andy Stanley on the same passage. Both very good and both very different. As that gift is used in a different manner, different style, but still very powerful. And so remember how you're gifted and let God work through your giftedness. Number three. Be joyful just to be a part of the process. Don't get caught up in, I'm not being noticed. Just be grateful for what you have. Be grateful in the blessings God has given to you and placed around you. Don't get lost in what you don't have because it can never compare with what you have in Christ. That is so critical and that is so important. And then lastly, finally less of me, more of thee, more of him. Looking to him, seeing him. Uh, in Baptist circles, we talk about this, and this is a moment-by-moment moment daily deal. We call it dying to self. Um, Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul tells us that... Um, It was the Christ who loved us and gave himself that we follow. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Um, it's just a moment by moment of, Lord, you know what they say about a living sacrifice? It's always trying to crawl off the altar and we're always trying to get off the altar and do our thing. But dying to self, Martin Luther used to say that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. It's Lord. I know I'm forgiven. I know you see Jesus, but I know what a rascal I am hiding behind Jesus. Help me, Lord, till I'm home with you. Help me rest in the fact that I'm completely loved. I'm completely forgiven. I am completely safe in the arms of Christ. That those arms that were nailed to the cross. I'm completely safe there, but I'm not with you yet, right? So anyway, let me close. Uh, it, This is a piece that deals with dying to self. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposefully set at naught, and you sting and you hurt with insult or oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, when your advice is disregarded, when your opinions are ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger in your heart or even defend yourself, but you take it in patient, loving silence, that's dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you're content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in a conversation or accord your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper, and you have, And to have his needs met and you can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy or question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that's dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. And that's not merely growing up, it's growing down in Christ. We're going to have a time of response, invitation. Uh, maybe God has spoken to your heart, Encourage you to respond to him. You know, there is a time, there is a point where we have to answer that question, who is Jesus Christ to me? Not just who is Jesus Christ in history, Not just who is Jesus Christ to those who are around me, but who is Jesus Christ to me? Is he the one who has forgiven not only the sins of the world, but your sins? Is he the one who left all of heaven to die for a sinful humanity? Is he the one who died for this sinful man and woman and child? Man, it's a a chance to deal with that question this morning and to say, He died for me. So this invitation is for you if you have never taken that initial step of trusting in Christ and finding new life and the forgiveness that He wants to provide you. Um, Maybe some have wandered away. (laughs) You're simply not where you should be and God's been dealing with you It's time to come back. This invitation is for you. Maybe you were in one of those uh, argumentative uh, states. You hurt somebody. You got hurt. Maybe God's dealing with you and saying, it's time to fix that. It's time to say, this is the role I had in it. God, give me the courage to deal with what needs to be dealt with. This invitation for you. Maybe it's just time for you to come and say, you know, God's dealing with me in obedience to come and be a part of this particular church family to join this church. Um, Maybe that's coming from another church. Maybe that's by statement. um, Maybe it's by following Christ in baptism. Just be obedient to him. That's the call. And for all of us, God help us die to self. God, uh, we need you, Lord. It's that simple. Um, uh, but, Father, we make it all complicated, Lord. Uh, bring us to the cross. Bring us to the altar. Bring us to obedience. Because only in you do we find what our hearts so cry out for. And uh, So in this time, we simply ask you are free to speak to us and that we are free to respond. Christ's name we pray.